If you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. We're going to be finishing up chapter 6 this morning. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, as we just sang, we desire to grow in faith and love and every grace. And Father, you have provided the means for our growth. You have provided the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, the fellowship of God's people. And so, Father, we ask now that you would indeed help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as we listen to you speak through your Word and by your Spirit. Father, open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are now on week number 23 of Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the gospel according to Mark. Most of you nowadays have heard of identity theft. Identity theft. It's a relatively new problem primarily due to the digital age that we now live in where somebody pretends to be who we are. They steal our identity and they pretend to be who we are to take advantage of our bank account or other primarily financial and other legal matters. But it's not only identity theft that's out there. There's also identity confusion. seems like there's a a new wave of identity confusion today where people really don't know who they are. And I'm specifically speaking, of course, to what we're hearing and seeing on the news these days. But actually, the problem of identity confusion goes back quite a while. Because there's always been widespread ignorance and confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. When we first started this series in Mark a number of weeks ago, I remember mentioning this article that I read entitled 10 Counterfeit Christ Figures We Should Stop Worshiping. And that was an excerpt from the book, The Original Jesus, Trading the Myths We Create for the Jesus Who Is. And in that book, the author says that there are 10 false Jesuses out there, 10 myths And he calls them Guru Jesus, Red Letter Jesus, Braveheart Jesus, American Jesus, Left Wing Jesus, Dr. Phil Jesus, Prosperity Jesus, Post Church Jesus, Best Friend Forever Jesus, and Legalist Jesus. Now, you may say, hey, I don't have an inclination to any of those. Well, there's actually a more common Jesus than that. It's the Jesus of our own imagination. And therefore, we're absolutely in desperate need of Jesus according to the Bible. And that's why we're in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest, it's the earliest, it's the core Gospel. And the Gospel, of course, is a new form of literature that tries to capture the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. It's not a biography as such. It's more like a theological biography and a theological documentary of the life and ministry of Jesus. 
And remember, with the Old Testament, we have Jesus predicted. With the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed. In Acts, Jesus preached. In the letters, Jesus is explained. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. And so the Gospels are foundational to understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. Look with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark has a purpose to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he identifies as the Son of God. Mark is organized in his structure. Those of you that have been with us for a while know that Mark can be divided into two halves. Part one answers the question, who is Jesus? And it focuses on his person. Part two answers the question primarily, what did Jesus come to do? And focuses on the work of Jesus. And the hinge that connects part one and part two is found in verse, excuse me, in chapter eight, verses 27 through 29, where Jesus asked two questions. Who do people say that I am? And he gets a variety of answers to that question. But then he follows up with a much more direct and personal question that no one then and now can escape. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, representing all of the disciples, answers, you are the Christ. Mark, as I've been saying, is our shortest catechism, a question and answer that helps us learn and understand. And the three questions are this, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, I want to consider briefly our relationship to the Bible in view of the Bible being both, as I've said before, a window into which we see God, through which we see God, and a mirror into which we see ourselves. And as we come to the Bible this morning or any time, We don't come so much to interrogate or question the Bible, although we do ask questions of the Bible, of course. But rather, we come because the Bible, God's Word, will interrogate us. It will question us because we are called to approach the Bible in humility from below and not from, I've already got all the answers, from above in arrogance. God's Word is holy, inerrant, and infallible. And nonetheless, as we will see today, as we've been seeing through Mark, it is absolutely unpolished in its view and presentation of those whom Jesus calls to follow him. Indeed, the Christian life is much more than it, but it's nothing less than following Jesus. Today, we move from the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And in view of the Bible as a window and a mirror, we're going to learn not only about Jesus, his life and his ministry, but also we're going to learn about those who follow him then and now. Join with me now as I read chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. 
And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they had not understood about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. First, we see that Jesus sends us away. Jesus sends his disciples away and he dismisses the crowd. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did he send his disciples on before him And then why did he stay around and dismiss this crowd of 5,000 men and all the women and children also associated? Why? Well, Mark doesn't really tell us directly, but John, in John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, we read this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, and that sign would have been the, the, the miraculous multiplication of the bread and the fish. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. How do you like that? They're going to make Jesus the king and Jesus withdraws from the crowd and he goes up to the mountain by himself. But notice, that's not what Mark says. They're not contradictory. They're just looking at Jesus' ministry from different angles. What does Mark emphasize? What does he include? He says, Jesus goes where? To the mountain and he prays alone. Here in Mark's account, the reason Jesus sends them ahead of him and dismisses the crowd is so Jesus can pray. So Jesus can pray. This is one of the most powerful demonstrations of the true humanity of Jesus. Notice Jesus, of course, has to be fully God in order to rescue his people. He has to also be fully human. Jesus was a man of trust. He was a man of faith. He trusted his father. He communed with his father in prayer. We often think of Jesus as needing to prove that he was divine But we also here see that he proves himself to be human. He prays as a man. 
to his father. And in Mark, we see that in three times. Early at the time of the wilderness, or excuse me, after some healings, here, and then at the time in the garden. He goes off and he prays. This is a significant time in the ministry of Jesus. While Jesus is praying alone on the mountain, what are his disciples doing? They're at sea. They're in a difficult situation, but they're not in a dangerous situation. Compare that to the storm at sea when Jesus was asleep in the boat. The description here is not of danger that the boat is going to be swamped. The, the emphasis here is just the difficulty of sailing into the wind. They're heading east, northeast, and they encounter a strong easterly wind known as a Sharkia wind. The disciples find themselves in great difficulty. It's not danger. And their difficulty comes, get this, as a result of their obedience. They obey Jesus. He says, go ahead of me. And they obey him. And they find themselves in difficulty. How about you all? You obey Jesus and you find yourself in difficulty. Or do you obey Jesus and say, hey, everything is supposed to be easy, smooth. Now, we understand that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life and the trials. But how about just life is hard. It's difficult. We're sailing into some strong wind. What does Jesus, what does obedience to Jesus cost you? What does it cost me? Convenience? Hardship? Again, the disciples then and now find themselves in a difficult situation, not because of disobedience to Jesus, but rather because of obedience to Jesus. The hours pass. Was Jesus going to ignore them? No, we see that Jesus sees them and he comes to them. Jesus comes to us and he reveals himself to us. <clears throat> Notice in verse 48, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch using a Roman clock would be between three and six in the morning so we don't know what time they left but they're having a hard time getting across the sea and sometime after three in the morning Jesus comes to them notice Jesus's intended action he meant to pass by them he meant to pass by them now that's a puzzling statement and there have been many ways to interpret that. I think the best way to interpret that using the entire Bible as our contextual guide is it's an implicit claim to his divinity. How so? Well, here we would see and hear echoes of the Old Testament because it's language used to describe Jesus' action. The language used here is throughout the Old Testament. We heard in um, the uh, reading from Exodus 33 and 34, three times in this famous account of Moses asking to see God and in return the Lord causing His glory to pass by Moses. In 1 Kings 19, we read 
of the prophet Elijah and the Lord. And we read these words. And he said, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord passed by his prophet. We read in the book of Job, Job writes this, God who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And interestingly, in that same chapter, a few verses earlier, Job writes this, who alone, speaking of the Lord, stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Jesus acts by intending to pass by them just as the Lord passed by Moses and revealed his glory. The disciples react to this action of Jesus in terror. They were terrified. They are overwhelmed with fear. But it's not a fear based on the conditions of the sea. It's fear based on who they see. And they think they're seeing a ghost. But what does Jesus do? He speaks. Take heart, he says. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus says two things. And there are two imperatives that surround an indicative. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Because right in the middle, he says this, it is I. I am. It's Exodus 3 language where we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say, to the, this peop, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's God's covenant name. It's Yahweh. It's the covenant name that God gives his people, that reveals to his people, I am. And throughout the gospel, according to John, we see Jesus saying, I am, I am. And finally, he comes to that I am. I am. This name, the Lord revealing His name here to Moses, meant that His nature would re be revealed by the redemption that He was about to achieve for Israel. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is picking up this language of revealing Himself to His people, saying, It is I, I am. Now for those of you familiar with the gospel according to Mark, what does Mark leave out of his gospel that you don't have, that you have at the beginning of Matthew and Luke and John? What are we missing in Mark? The birth of Jesus, the incarnation narratives, right? But... Let's ask ourselves, is there not an incarnation narrative here in Mark's gospel? 
Because the first question is, who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh, Mark is wanting his reader, he's wanting us to see. Here is a divine appearance, a divine epiphany. He's making this appearance as a revelation of his divine glory of the Son of God. Yahweh has come in the flesh. It's divine self-revelation. Here, Jesus is revealing his glory. And to be sure, we see his glory at the resurrection. And in a few chapters, we'll see his glory at the transfiguration. But here is Jesus' glory as he walks on the sea. Jesus sends them away. Jesus comes to them and Jesus makes himself known and he reveals his glory. With this, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher, is testing his disciples. And in a word, I know school is out for most everybody, so you might not want to think about tests right now, but in a word, they fail the test. The fundamental aspect of their failure is their failure to make the connection. And it's a failure on two accounts. Because yes, even though Jesus sends us away, and yes, even though Jesus comes to us and reveals himself to us, we fail to make the connection. Well, let's note first, before we look at the two failures, the response of the disciples to the words and the presence of Jesus. They are astounded. They're amazed, in other words. They're astonished. They did not understand. Look at 52. And he got, excuse me, 51. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. They did not understand. Did you notice also that Jesus didn't have to say anything to the wind this time? It was just his presence that stilled the wind. So how do they fail to make the connection? Well, first, it's a failure to make the immediate connection. What had Jesus just done? He, using his disciples, had fed the 5,000. He had multiplied the bread and the fish. And they were part of Jesus' miracle. And they didn't get it. They should not have been surprised that if this man can multiply food, then he could also walk on the water. But second, it's a failure to make the big picture connection. Mark has been revealing to us, and Jesus has been revealing to his disciples that he is God in the flesh. Mark has provided numerous clues, evidence. We see the authority in preaching, the authority to forgive sins, to heal. They should have connected the dots. They should have come to the conclusion. We're going to be coming up uh, in September on what? The uh, 15th anniversary of 9-11? 15 years, and everybody afterwards says, couldn't they have connected the dots? Couldn't we have known what was coming? Well, my friends, hindsight is what? 2020. And as I like to say, life makes more sense in the rearview mirror than the windshield, doesn't it? They couldn't come to the conclusion yet that Jesus was God. 
Why did they fail? Why did they respond to Jesus like this? Look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. This description of fear and failure is absolutely shocking. This is an unvarnished, unpolished view. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, you see that the charge of hard hearts is leveled against the Pharisees. And it's now being leveled against the disciples. In the midst of all of this exodus imagery, with the feeding of the 5,000 and manna, with deliverance on the sea, allusion to the Red Sea, with all of this imagery, the disciples are being likened to Pharaoh and to the rebellious nation of Israel in the desert when their hearts were hardened. Mark's point here is clear. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament come to rescue his people. But even the representatives of new Israel, in other words, the disciples he has called to himself, they don't get it. Their hearts are hardened. They have a big, big problem that Jesus will explain in the next chapter. And it's not written here, but it could be written. And that's this. If their hearts are hardened, and they can't understand and get who Jesus is, who then can? Who then can be saved? One commentator writes this, quote, The problem was not that they hadn't seen enough or that Jesus had not given them enough evidence of His power. The problem was spiritual. They should have known better, but their hearts were hard as ours are far too much of the time. By this time, they should have got past the stage of instinctive astonishment to some real understanding of who Jesus is and what He can do. This incident ends with the statement that their hearts were hardened. But the boat journey continues in those last few verses of chapter 6. Mark provides a summary and a bridge to get Jesus back to the populated region and ready for his encounter with the Pharisees in chapter 7. Mark is continuing now to show us Jesus lifting the veil on his identity. Now what's the lesson for us in this miracle? Nearly all the miracles that we've had thus far have been rescues from physical danger, uh, diseases, demons, sickness, hunger. But what about this miracle? The miracle of what? Walking on the water and stopping the wind. What was it for? It was a sign of Jesus' enormous power. And get this. It was purely for their benefit. It was a way to help rescue them from ignorance and to rescue them from unbelief. Jesus wanted them to see for them, Jesus wanted them to see him delivering them. He wanted to strengthen their faith in him. Jesus wanted them to know that trusting in him 
that in doing so, they were trusting in no less than the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, who treads upon the waters. To live by faith in Jesus Christ is finally the only thing that matters we will come to know. And so here, Jesus fills our lives with what reveals and tests and strengthens our faith. This is a test. We're cut in on it. The disciples then fail. His disciples now are continuing to take this test because what does it do? It reveals and it strengthens our faith. Notice once again these words of Jesus in verse 50. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. With these words, Jesus rescues his disciples from ignorance. They don't know who it is. They think it's a ghost. No, it's me. And then he also gives them confidence. Do not be afraid. Because faith is reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and acting upon that knowledge in practical, everyday situations. Here's the difference between confessional theology and practical theology, between profession of faith and possession of faith. Well, let me ask a question one more time. Have you ever failed to make the connection? The clues are everywhere, aren't they? But the proper conclusion still needs to be reached. Because you see, the disciples had only some of the information but guess what? We have all of the information that will be given Genesis to Revelation. And it's completed. And it's all about Jesus. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is now with us by his Holy Spirit, what can we do? We can take heart and not be afraid in the midst of of a trouble-filled life that is difficult at best and dangerous at worst. For as we read in Isaiah 41, these words, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We don't know if that's what the disciples thought, men who were educated in the Scriptures. We don't know if they were thinking that when they saw Jesus and heard Jesus and as he stepped into the boat, but it would have been an appropriate connection to make. Well, at this stage in their following of Jesus, the disciples don't get who Jesus is, but what did they do? They kept following. And so if you're sitting here this morning, now this early afternoon, struggling to one degree or another, to understand exactly who Jesus is and what He came to do, and we all struggle at various times and places with that, keep following. Literally, don't jump off the boat. Stay in the boat with Jesus. He'll get you to the other side. Keep following Jesus. And as you follow Him, He will make Himself known to you. For as Isaiah went on to write these words, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. And indeed, He may be found. And He is near. 
The Lord God Almighty is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, here's the word that we need to hear once again. As we are about ready to enter back into a world of difficulty and danger, where our obedience to Jesus may for a time, as it were, send us away from Jesus. And as we're walking by faith and not by sight at the moment, these words, may they echo in our hearts. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account once again of the miraculous. And Father, we are amazed that Jesus does this for the benefit of those he has called to follow him. He's doing it so that they would grow in the understanding of who Jesus is. Oh, Father, would you make us all the more receptive to the various ways that you make yourself known to us through your word and by your spirit. And Father, we acknowledge that it is easy for our hearts to be hardened. We remember the warnings of Scripture. Father, would you enable us by your kindness and mercy to keep a soft heart before you and one another, a soft heart that is receptive to the truth, a soft heart that when we sin, we run to you in repentance. Oh, Father, help us to stay close to Jesus, the one who makes himself known to us and calls us to not be afraid as we are with him. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. In contrast.